If religion was the way to God, every one of us this morning would have every reason for despair. By religion, I mean the man-made, works-based, performance-oriented attempt to somehow merit favor with a holy God. Religion is not filled with hope. Religion is filled with despair. It's a daily reminder of all the ways we don't measure up. Every year, thousands and thousands and thousands of people walk away from religion. They are wounded, they are discouraged, and they are disillusioned. And they are convinced there's no way they will ever measure up to God. But the gospel of Jesus is radically, utterly different. And it is filled with hope. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Second. Peter chapter 1. Last fall we went through 1 Peter. 2 Peter, probably a couple of years after 1 Peter. Same recipients. Peter's probably now just months out from his execution. So, AD 60, late 66, 67... Uh, Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified by Nero, and this is getting pretty close to that moment. His concern is once he is dead, the false teachers will come in and will lead these people astray. The false teachers are not the secularists. They're not the atheists. They're the religionists. They bring a message that sounds sort of right, but very subtly leads people away into disillusionment and destruction. Chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter identifies himself as the writer the first century, it wasn't unusual to have new names. Simon would be the Jewish name. Peter would be the Greek name. And he identifies himself as a slave of Christ. There is a Greek word that refers to a household servant. This is not the word. This is the word that clearly references a slave. Peter does not write as a Christian celebrity. He writes as a slave of Christ. With that is the understanding that he is determined to be obedient to the master, and he also identifies in this letter, he is very clear, it will cost him his life. He also identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle in the very technical sense, he was one of the twelve. He did hear the message of the gospel directly out of the mouth of Jesus himself. This goes to Peter's authority. It also goes to his credibility. The false teachers got their information somewhere else. Peter got it directly out of the mouth 
of Jesus. The recipients to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First notice that the recipients are those who have received the faith. These are not people that earned it. These are not people that deserved it. These were not people that fulfilled religious requirements. As a matter of fact, the term received is a Greek word that carries the idea of something distributed and freely received. The faith they have was simply received. He tells us at the end of that verse, it's on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. One really interesting thing that he says is that it is the same kind, could be translated value as ours. Historically, the Jews and the Gentiles hated one another. It's hard to really articulate the depth of the emotion and hatred that separated the Jews and the Gentiles. Whatever racial tension we feel in our country, it is not close to the depth of the disdain and hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews considered themselves the spiritual elite. They were the only ones that had access to God. They considered the Greeks to be pagans, and there was a deep tension between them. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 that one of the radical outcomes of the message of the gospel is now that Jews and Gentiles are one in every way before God. So Peter's statement is radical. The faith of these Greek pagans was equal in every way to that of Peter's. Not just to the Jews, Peter was one of the twelve. He was one of the inner three, a hall of famer. And yet, before God, what Peter had was no more than or less than than the faith of these Gentiles who had now experienced new life in Christ. That's really quite a radical statement. We in our culture, in our country, Feel this tension. It's between races, but it's also between uh, political views. There's just a lot of ways we are divided. And I think most people would say we'd like to see that come to an end. We'd like to figure out some way to come together. But we have no real idea of how to do that. In many ways, we would say it's actually getting worse, not getting better. The problem is the secular worldview has no basis by which people come together. As much as they want that, they have no foundational belief that provides that. That's equally true of an atheist worldview. They may be really good people, but they have no basis in their worldview by which people come together. It's equally true of a religious worldview. Religion around the world doesn't bring us together. It divides us. It always has. But what is remarkably different is at the core of the Christian worldview is this radical belief 
that because we all stand in the righteousness of Christ, there is no one more than, there is no one less than. We stand together and equal before a holy God because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you live in a mansion or you're homeless. It doesn't matter if your skin is black or white, if you're Indian, Asian, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years or if you accepted Christ last night. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. None of us stand before God on the basis of our own performance, on the basis of our own religious activity. We equally stand in the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, no one more than, no one less than. Now, honestly, honestly, when you walked through those doors this morning, did you understand that? Isn't there a tendency to walk through these doors and think those around me are like the spiritual elite? And I'm kind of like a spiritual loser, maybe the B team. If that's how you think, you have fallen prey to the lies of the false teacher. One of the remarkable truths of the gospel, no matter who you are, no matter what your story, no matter what you've done, if you've accepted Christ as Savior, we all stand equal in every way in the righteousness of Christ before a holy God. That's what Peter said about the recipients. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is a familiar couplet. We see it occur often. But it's always helpful to stop and think about what's being said there. There is no possibility for true peace unless you have a deep, rigorous, courageous understanding of grace. If you don't think grace is scandalous, you don't get it. The reality of grace is this is true of me on my best days. It's equally true of me on my worst days. That I stand right before a holy God because I stand in the righteousness of Christ. On those days, where I don't represent the gospel well. On those days when I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't treated someone that way. I come home disappointed and discouraged. 
and know that I did not represent Jesus well today. On those days, I still put my head on my pillow in peace. Thankful that my standing before God is not based on my performance. It's not based on my ability to do good works. I stand righteous before a holy God. Even on my worst days. On the basis of God's grace. When I have a deep, rich, rigorous theology of grace, it allows me to live my life in peace. That's why that couplet is together again and again and again. He says this is about the knowledge of God. This is a key term in 2 Peter. This term knowledge is used 11 times in three short chapters. The English is kind of misleading. To us, knowledge means information. So I have to have a lot of information about God. That's not what the term means. It's a term that has much more to do with with intimacy and relationship. As a matter of fact, it's the term that was used to describe sexual relations between a husband and a wife. It's this idea of experiencing a relationship with God, something that is real, something that is life-giving and life-changing, that is a result of this gift that God freely offers. Verse 3 kind of unpacks a little more of this relationship. Seeing that his divine power has granted, which means a royal gift, generously given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Could be translated the godly life. Through the true knowledge, this experience of this relationship with him who called us. What Peter says is this outflow of this this experience, this relationship, this life with Christ. That we have been given everything necessary to live out this Christian life. That God, on the basis of his power, has granted us everything necessary to live this godly life that is an outflow of this relationship with Jesus. Now this is critical to understand. When the false teachers come along, what makes their message appealing is they convince you you're lacking something. You're missing something. And what you need to unlock your Christian life is what they offer. That's what makes the message appealing. So it's critically important to understand there is nothing you lack. You don't need an experience. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. You don't need more of God. There isn't some mysterious key that unlocks your Christian faith. There's nothing that you need 
that you lack. Often when you go and look through the section of Christian books, many of them promise there is a secret, there's a key, there is something that mysteriously unlocks the Christian life and will finally give you what you're looking for. That is high risk because it easily leads you astray. The truth is you lack nothing that you need. We might say it this way. If you lack anything, it may simply be the understanding that you lack nothing. If you lack anything, it may simply be the understanding that you actually lack nothing. It is possible that you simply don't know that, that you need to learn and understand more of what you have in Christ. We gather every weekend. Part of my responsibility is to help you understand what is true of you in Christ. I can explain it. I can try to help you understand it. But I can't believe it for you. We kind of have a partnership here. I'll try to understand, uh, explain it clearly so you might understand it, but you have to have the courage to believe that God tells the truth and that what you need, you already have, granted to you by the power of God. He says, God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. You could translate that his glorious moral character. Excellence is referring to his moral excellence. It's just another description of his righteousness. It's all based on the righteousness of Christ. Verse 4, for by these, his glorious uh, moral character, by these he has granted royal gift, generously given to us, his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Therefore, on the basis of the righteousness of Christ, you haven't earned it, you haven't deserved it, you haven't performed for it. But on the basis of God's mercy, he has given it to you. And what has he given you? This new life in Christ that comes with these precious and magnificent promises. Promises that give us hope. We already looked at some of those promises in the service earlier. There's nowhere where God promises that life will be easy. Peter's about to die for his faith. There's nowhere that God promises everything's going to make sense. 
Everything's going to work out. There's never going to be heartache. As a matter of fact, the Bible couldn't be more clear. That's not likely the way your story's going to go. It's going to be hard. What he does promise is I will never leave you or forsake you. He does promise I'll never take you through anything that's more than you can handle. He does promise I will forgive your sin. He promises there is no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He promises that I will make you a new creation. He promises that the old things are past and new things have come. He promises that there will be life after death. He promises a new heaven and a new earth. He promises that the new heaven and new earth will be the fulfillment of everything that our souls long for today. He promises that he will redeem our stories, our hurts, our heartaches. All of us have legitimate longings and desires that we would love to see realized in this world, but the promise is someday they will be realized and fulfilled in every way. He promises he will come back and that your future is more magnificent than words could describe today. He promises that what he started in you, he will finish. And he promises that this is all on the basis of his grace and mercy. Peter told us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that by the mercy of God, you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ in order to obtain an inheritance an inheritance that is so sure, it's already reserved in heaven for you. An inheritance that can't be corrupted, it can't be diminished, it can't be lost. And we await the return of Christ, where we will experience the fullness of our salvation and the fulfillment of these precious and magnificent promises forever. All of that freely given as an act of God's mercy and grace. He says in verse 4, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Very unique language, Peter language. The different New Testament writers say it a little differently. Jesus said, you must be born again. That's not a tweaking. That's not a makeover. That's not merely a ticket to heaven. That is as radical as it gets. Somehow, you're actually born again. It's the language Peter picked up in First Peter. By the mercy of God, you have been born again to a living hope. It's radical. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Crucifixion implies death. Who died? I did. My old self died. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that when we trusted Christ as Savior, my old self 
died with Christ. It was crucified with Christ. He died my death. My old self was buried with Christ. My old self is so dead. How dead is he? He's so dead. We buried him. He's gone. And he's not coming back. Paul goes on to say, I have been resurrected in the newness of life in Christ. Paul says, I have become a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I have now become a partaker of the divine nature, partaker of the very nature of Christ himself. I am new. I am a new creation in Christ. It is just simply not true that you now have two natures. As long as you think that way, you're going to live that way. You're going to get stuck in Romans 7 and have this ongoing battle between the new natures. Your nature is your core. It's your essence. Paul says in Ephesians, you were darkness. Now you're light. Not you were in darkness. You were darkness. Now you are light. You can't be both. Your nature is your essence. It's your core. Something died. It died and was buried. What died? My old self. I am now a partaker of the divine nature. I am a new creation in Christ. The sin that kept me in bondage is no longer what defines me. I have been set free. I need to understand this is the new me. I am a new creation in Christ, a partaker of the divine nature. Something that God has started in me and will complete at his return. The second part of verse 4 says, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the lust. There's places where the New Testament talks about the lust. It talks about the temptation. Both are a reference to Genesis 3. That the ultimate temptation, the ultimate lust I have, is to be my own God. Every other temptation, every other lust flows out of that. All of us have legitimate longings and desires. We have this deep something within us that we long to see fulfilled. We wrongly conclude the best way to fulfill that is for me to function as my own God. I think if I take charge, that is the most likely way that these longings and desires will be fulfilled. But there's a huge problem with that. I am totally inadequate for the job. I cannot function as my own God. I simply am not equipped to be God. 
Therefore, it's not a life of fulfillment and satisfaction and joy. It is a life of heartache. It is a life of despair. It's a life of disappointment again and again and again. I am disappointed with my inability to deliver the goods. But when I trusted Jesus as Savior, I surrendered to God as God with my belief that ultimately the only one that can satisfy these longings and desires of my soul is Jesus himself. The verb tenses in verse 4 are aorist tense verbs, which means at a moment in time. The moment I trusted Christ as Savior, I became a partaker of the divine nature. And that moment, I escaped the corruption of this world and its lusts. In this life, we experience kind of a, a, a taste of the fulfillment of those longings and desires. Those longings and desires will not be fully realized until the new heaven and the new earth, when God ushers in the fulfillment of his kingdom. These precious and magnificent promises that deliver everything that my soul has ever longed for forever. The remarkable truth of the gospel is that this is not offered on the basis of your works. It's not on the basis of your performance. It's not on the basis of your religious activity. It is on the basis of God's grace and mercy. That because we were lost in our sin with no hope, God sent his son to make payment for our sin on the cross as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection. He offers us salvation, radical new birth, freely, freely as a gift. It's critically important this morning to understand. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. You might be the nicest person in the room. You might have the ugliest story in the room. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter. God offers you salvation freely as a gift if you're willing to have the courage and the faith to believe. One of the great celebrations we have together as the church is baptism. Baptism is the public identification of people saying, I have chosen to follow Jesus. Two weeks after Easter, we'll have our spring baptism. I'm going to bring this up several times in 2 Peter. But if you have trusted Christ as Savior, 
and never taken this important step of obedience, I would strongly encourage you to do that. It's a way of publicly identifying that I choose to be a follower of Christ. There is this remarkable, scandalous reality to God's grace. That it doesn't matter this morning who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done or what's been done to you. Doesn't matter. God offers every single person in the room salvation freely as a gift. A salvation full of hope. Full of everything that your soul longs for. And it's yours, freely, if you choose to receive it. That is the gospel truth. Our Father, we celebrate this almost unimaginable truth this morning. That all of us in our stories were sinners worthy of condemnation. And yet on the basis of this gift, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, on the basis of your grace and mercy, we stand right before a holy God because we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. God, my prayer would be not one person would walk back out this morning without receiving this gift that is so full of hope. Lord, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. My name is Ami. I'm a research engineer. I have a PhD in materials engineering. When I was a little boy growing up in India, my mom told me that God was a very personal God. God would be my best friend. And I thought, that's somebody I would like to know. But growing up in a Hindu family, that raises a number of questions. Who is God? Which God? There are several gods. And how do you find him? How do you attain his presence? So I was taught there was multiple ways to find God. Uh, there's the way of works, and that's the karma yoga. There's the way of knowledge, the jnana yoga. There's the way of devotion. I tried several of these approaches, but I didn't come any closer to God. He, was, he still eluded me. My father is a geologist, and when he retired, he was in charge of all the labs in geology in India. He was a deputy director general. And I wanted to be like him. So I studied science. And one of the things in science is that you make a model to try to understand things. And then you check your model, you validate your model with what reality is. And if they don't match, it's time to make a new model. So as I was pursuing science from a career perspective, that same analytical bent of mind 
went towards my own life um, and trying to understand it and my understanding of God. And my theory was that if I were to try these different works, this uh, pursuing knowledge, doing social work, um, I would perhaps get closer to God. But reality was I was nowhere closer to God. I did not know God to the way that my mom told me that he was my best friend. And so I was stuck. Perhaps there was something wrong with me. I had not done good things in my past, and there were many other things. There was also insecurities, like I was fearful for my future. I didn't know if I measured up to my dad. So I had pursued different paths, met several people. Many years had passed since I was a little boy. But at the end of it all, I'm still wondering who I am, why I'm here. There's still that emptiness. So I'm in college, third year, finishing up third year, and I run into a visiting professor from America at my institute by the name of David. And we connect immediately. And he started to tell me about Jesus. And then he started to open up a book, a, a thick book, the Bible, and he started to share verses from it. And I remember a few things that really struck me was that Abraham walked with God. There were several people that walked with God. And I read about Gideon, and I see how God takes Gideon and makes him realize that God's doing it all. God empowers him, prepares him, and is with him. And then David was sharing from the book of Revelation that God comes and knocks on your door, and he comes in, and he will eat with you, he will dine with you. This is the kind of God I was looking for all my life. In retrospect, I realized that the model I was using was wrong. Me doing something wasn't working. It didn't work. It hadn't worked. God does it all. And Jesus came in the form of David in my college. Uh, the way he shared Christ uh, helped me understand who I am and where I fit into God's creation. And as I grew in my faith, I met different people and they helped me understand that it is because of what Jesus did on the cross is what allows me to have a relationship with God. When I am distraught, I go to Jesus and he speaks to me through Psalm 23. And he speaks to me through other people. And that's how God is real. God shows up. Growing up, I was looking for God. But God found me and he completed me. He's changed me for the better. And because of the relationship that I have in Jesus, I feel complete, he's given me enormous joy, and I've found that best friend that I've been looking for.